views expressed on TMI with Aldous Tyler do not necessarily reflect the views of any website, social media platform, or podcasting host that you may find it on. Oh no, for the next segment, the views expressed are all mine. TMI with Aldous Tyler for Monday, July 13th, 2020. That's right, Monday the 13th. If you're an old Garfield fan, of course, you knew that was his version of Friday the 13th, a day of absolute unprecedented and un- unforeseen horrors always erupted on such a day. However, however, um, there are truly unprecedented horrors going on, at least in some ways, uh, in these United States. Now, I'm going to bring up Black Lives Matter, but that's not the horror. Oh, no. As you may be aware, if you've heard any of my past episodes, uh, I'm fully in support of the movement of Black Lives Matter. Um, I believe we need to uh, do everything we can to listen and take note uh, to what the, these people are saying uh, and, and to listen to the struggles that they have in their lives. Um, but not everybody is so uh, charitable about it. Um, across the country, we've been seeing backlash. Now, you may have heard me report on a lynching or two here or there, because that's what was crossing my particular desk. But um, Carl Gibson, friend of the show, has been tracking uh, much more numerous hate crime backlashes against Black Lives Matter uh, protesters and activists. And uh, I am very pleased to have Carl returning to the show. Carl, welcome back to TMI. Thanks for having me, Aldous. It's great to be back. Absolutely. So, uh, like I said, the lynchings, you know, we'd seen them here and there. There was California and Texas, Tennessee, uh, various places where um, a black man would be found hanging from a tree. And then, of course, the local jurisdiction generally going, oh, I don't know. I got there. It must be suicide. Um, and uh, to which, of course, my response is, you know, black people generally don't hang themselves from trees. I just, just usually not what they do. No, that's, um, that's definitely not, especially not near public buildings downtown. That just doesn't happen. No, it just, this is not the modus operandi. I'm just saying it doesn't happen. So, uh, but you found that this is more than just an occasional lynching, right? Um, yeah, there's, um, there's actually a, a pretty troubling trend that I've noticed of um, right-wing uh, vigilantes, militia groups, um, racists in general, um, who were violently targeting Black Lives Matter protesters. Uh, now, you know, earlier... Uh, last week, I think, there was a link in Mike.com, um, which I think they cited the New York Times. A lot of people were sharing those links about the wave of car attacks um, targeting protesters. I think there's been more than 60 since the uh, George Floyd protests began. But actually, um, when you factor in all of the incidents against protesters, not just car attacks, but shootings, assaults, um, threats, intimidation, um, getting protests canceled because of threats. Uh, when you factor all of that in, it's um, almost, uh, well, it's more than 300 incidents in over 200 counties. Uh, and that's just since May 30th. 
And, you know, it was interesting because I was in the middle of documenting. I was trying to document every instance that I had found uh, on Twitter of people showing threats, intimidation, violence against protesters. And then I happened to cross a mega thread put together uh, by someone named Alexander Reed Ross, who's a professor at Portland State University in Oregon. Um, and he had actually documented all these incidents going back to May 30th. Um, and those are just the ones he found. He said that there's almost likely more. Um, but when you compare the level of violence that's being carried out against Black Lives Matter protesters, and just look at how disproportionate the media coverage has been, whereas they might report one-off incidents or you know, people like uh, the New York Times reporters who counted all these car attacks, um, it's really, it, it pales in comparison to the nonstop wall-to-wall -wall coverage of broken windows um, and looted storefronts. Uh, oh, yeah. Were just, yeah, I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't go anywhere, website, TV, newspaper, anywhere, without seeing wall-to-wall -wall coverage of, of broken windows and looting. Uh, oh, when, Wendy's burns and everybody loses their crap, yeah. but, uh, yeah. but, but they aren't even talking. I don't think I've heard too much mainstream media coverage at all about even the, just the lynchings I was mentioning. No. Um, and, and again, you might see one-off incidents, but they don't really connect the dots for people. Uh, and I think the media is doing people a huge disservice. Um, you know, and this, this piece that I wrote on my Substack, Free Chicken and Beer, I had actually pitched it to, um, you know, I have, um, I have regular columns at CNN, The Guardian, uh, Barron's, The Independent. Uh, I pitched this to all of my editors, in addition to editors at other publications, because I wanted a lot of eyes on this, because it's important news that people need to, to read about. Um, I didn't even get so much as a rejection. Like, nobody responded to my pitches. Uh, and so, you know, this is just, it's such an important story, and I just wanted to make sure uh, that people read about it. And uh, well, that, was, that was the impetus behind uh, writing this piece. Well, Carl, as I understand it in the uh, world of journalism, which I'm, you know, pretty familiar with, if you get what's called the ghost rejection or the non-rejection where they just don't reply at all, it's because they don't want in writing anywhere that they rejected such a story, but they sure don't want to run it either. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to uh, assume the worst in my editors, uh, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's very likely possible. Maybe they just didn't want to talk about it. Uh, it certainly makes, uh, it makes a big point in how, you know, it, and according to a Wikipedia tally, uh, there's been at least 26 people killed uh, since May 30th uh, from the George Floyd protests, which, you know, I'm not, um, I'm not the most well-read terrorism expert, but I'm pretty sure that's more people who, who have been killed um, for protesting than who have been killed by, say, for example, um, jihadi extremists this year. Oh, know? absolutely. The one thing I can tell you, too, is that uh, death being, you know, of course, as final and horrific as it is, um, is not the only consequence. When you mentioned car attacks, immediately came to mind the attack of a young woman here in Madison, 18-year-old, who uh, was um, attacked in her car. She was in her car, and these... Uh, four fellows who were in dressed boogaloo attire uh, threw uh, lighter fluid into her vehicle, you know, doused her with lighter fluid and threw a lit lighter in and burned her. She didn't die. But let me tell you, that's not exactly, you know, um, the kind of thing you want happening in your life. Yeah. And it's hard to imagine that that wasn't politically motivated, uh, you know, and violence carried out to advance a political objective is the most basic definition of terrorism. 
Uh, and so, you know, you have to ask yourself if you have a wave of domestic terrorism, you know, if it were being carried out by Black Lives Matter protesters or by, again, jihadi extremists or by, you know, even like Brant Davidians, like in Waco, it would be wall-to-wall national news. But it's, it's not being mentioned hardly at all, uh, at least in the larger context of a pattern of violence, which um, I believe Alexander Reed Ross's uh, research demonstrates pretty effectively. Oh, absolutely. I mean, in the case I'm talking about, and I want to make sure to get her name in here because I'm all about saying people's names. Uh, Althea Bernstein, she would stop for a red light uh, here in downtown Madison at uh, Gorman State. It was around 1 a.m. And uh, she had the uh, windows on her driver's side rolled down because it was kind of a warm night. Uh, Apparently four white men approached her car. Uh, One yelled out a racial uh, slur and then in came a... uh, a uh, spray of uh, liquid on her face and neck, and then a flaming lighter got thrown at her, and which caused the ignition, and boom. I mean, and I, I'm not, um, I'm not the most read on that incident. Were the perpetrators of that attack ever found or, or arrested? Not yet. When did that happen? Uh, that happened, shoot, uh, more than a month ago now. I think. Allow me to just grab the exact date. Uh, from the report itself, we are talking about not quite more than a month ago. It was uh, June twenty fourth, I believe. Wow, June twenty fourth. Yeah, um, and that's that's horrible. First, um, but you know, I think uh, I think that also shows that police aren't really interested in tracking down the perpetrators of these attacks, at least not as zealously as they uh, prosecute people who, for example. Uh, target police cars. Uh, you know, I'm looking right now at a headline from June 18th um, from Business Insider. The FBI said it used Instagram, Etsy, and LinkedIn to track down a protester in Philadelphia accused of setting a police car on fire. Oh, yeah. So if they can arrest someone based on a shirt they bought from Etsy, but they can't arrest the people who set Althea Bernstein's car on fire, you know, that's, yeah. that's deliberate. No, I would say so. I mean, you're talking about a city here in Madison where there was a fellow who was arrested after, uh, I, I will admit, uh, definitely causing more than a ruckus by bringing a baseball bat into a local establishment, threatening people with it. He didn't actually hurt anyone with it, but he did that. He broke windows and then helped lead a uh, pulling down of a Civil War statue here. Oh, they got him and he's already put away. Wow. Yeah, I mean, so Madison police are capable of finding people who commit crimes, you know, it's just uh, how they allocate the resources to, oh, absolutely. to find those people, you know, and that's, that's another thing that I really wanted to draw attention to with this piece was it's not just that there's a wave of right-wing domestic terror sweeping the nation uh, against protesters sweeping the nation. It's the fact that police are in many cases um, not only aware of it, but also encouraging it uh, and even participating in it. Uh, you know, when I talked to Alexander Reed Ross uh, earlier this week, you know, one of the things he pointed out was that uh, the Three Percenters, which is a right-wing extremist militia group, the Southern Poverty Law Center has written about them. They have a lot of members in police departments. Um, there was a officer in Orange County, California, who wore a, um, a Three Percenter patch. Uh, and, of course, he was suspended after people pointed that out. There's also another officer with the Chicago Police Department uh, who is wearing a mask with the 3%er logo. There's actually several of them. Um, there's a photo in the piece. You can see 
at least four Chicago police officers wearing three percenter masks. Um, and then when you look at the treatment of the right-wing vigilantes and counter-protesters by police, it's almost with, um, with kid gloves and they go out of their way to make sure that they aren't harmed. Um, you know, there's, there's video of the police in Albuquerque, New Mexico uh, in mid-June after a Black Lives Matter protester was shot. The police then surrounded the militia group uh, that the shots came from. And, you know, of course, they said that was to keep the peace. Um, but when the person who had allegedly shot the protester, a man named Stephen Baca, when he was arrested and charged, they eventually dropped the charges. Uh, and there's a variety of reasons why they dropped the charges. They said maybe one of the Black Lives Matter protesters had a gun. Um, New Mexico is an open carry state, as far as I understand. Uh, so that person was within their rights. Uh, but they dropped the charges. And when you read about Stephen Baca, he is actually the son of a former sheriff in, I believe, Texas. Um, but yeah, he has, a, he has uh, law enforcement connections in his family. Uh, and so there's a lot of instances where, and, and Ross mentioned this, where right-wing extremists and police have a general affinity with each other. And they've worked together. They know each other. They know each other's families. Um, and they're often in the same circles. Uh, socially and, and, and in other ways. Oh, I, I can believe that. And also, some of them not only are part of the uh, three percenter group, but there's uh, there's also been some um, there's also been some tracing of uh, police officers as being members of the Boogaloo movement. Are, are you familiar with that one? Yeah, the Boogaloo movement, uh, the Proud Boys, is another one that oh yeah mm -hmm. they've had affinity with. And yeah, the more people dig up these connections, um, the more it looks like. A pattern and less like a few isolated incidents. Well, and and just just to do a quick decode for the audience, allow allow me if you don't mind. Uh, three percenters. The name is uh, based on a uh, disputed claim that it was only three percent of the American colonists that took up arms against the British government in order to have the American Revolution be successful. Um, uh, that's that's a highly disputed claim, but then facts I think are almost like a third. It was like yeah, yeah, yeah. Fa facts are very rarely on the side of the right wing. Right. Um, but the but so their their claim is, of course, if they can get three percent of the population to take up arms against this government, they can overthrow it. Uh, anyway, uh, and then uh, with the Boogaloo movement, that is of all things because they're aiming to have a new racial civil war that they have dubbed Civil War Two Electric Boogaloo. And I kid you not. Um, yeah. <laughs> Wow. And, uh, and, and then, of course, the Proud Boys is because they're all about white pride. Um, right. And so, uh, but I wanted to make sure to decode those real quick for listeners so they understand the nature of the people we're talking about. We are talking about people who are wanting to foment a new revolution for right-wing purposes or wanting to start a new civil war for racial purposes or simply are so proud of being white that they want to actively uh, help advance the subjugation of those who aren't. And you have to really look at you know, why this type of thinking and why these types of groups have really sprung up and really just um, taken on a new level of confidence over the last several years. Uh, one of the first signals that this administration sent, and this administration speaks in signals and in code, but one of the first signals they sent, I remember in 2017, um, the Trump administration's Department of Homeland Security actually dismantled the uh, office within DHS that looked at domestic terrorism and they redirected its resources to fighting uh, jihadi extremism. And, you know, of course, 2018, a year after that, 
Um, that was a year where uh, I think 98% of all domestic terror attacks were committed by right-wing extremists. And that's from the uh, Anti-Defamation League. They have uh, a whole bunch of um, chronicling of incidents. But yeah, it's, it's just kind of taken off. And I think the signal that this administration is sending, and Ross talked about this in our interview, uh, was that this kind of vigilantism is being encouraged by the administration. Uh, you know, Ross told me, he said, um, you know, when Trump yells in all caps on Twitter, liberate Michigan, uh, that's sort of a direct order to his base to rally against health and safety and to usurp the authority and jurisdiction of local governments. And of course, you remember uh, in Michigan, right-wing protesters stormed the Capitol and they had to gavel out the legislative session. Um, yes, which well, said, absolutely. Yeah. As I was about to say, and the other thing is, is that, I mean, one of the most uh, damning things Trump has done as far as signals are concerned is his tweet that ended, when the looting begins, the shooting begins. Yeah, and that was actually a quote from George Wallace. Uh, I think that's where he got that. And when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Yep, exactly. And then, of course, when he tweets about the Second Amendment uh, in more discreet terms, uh, he said, liberate Virginia, they're coming for your Second Amendment rights, something to that effect. Uh, Ross was telling me, he said, you know, that's giving a head nod to armed vigilantes. And when he's posting photos of protesters, like he did on his Twitter a uh, week or two ago, to get people to identify them, um, it's kind of like posting a 19th century wanted poster. That's how Roth characterized it, uh, which kind of encourages bounty hunters. Uh, and so all that is to show a pattern. You know, when the president of the United States is encouraging this type of vigilantism, of course, you're going to see an increase in violence. Uh, and I think a wave of right wing domestic terror that doesn't already have the ear of the administration. You know, I think it's fair to say that they are encouraging this if not directly, certainly through coded language. And then it goes down from there, because once the president is doing things like that, you have the mayor of St. Louis going and doxing uh, everybody who had written her office to uh, ask that she defund the police. Yeah, I read about that. That was, um, was that before or after the uh, gun couple? Um, that was, that, that, was just, that was just before. That was like the weekend before. Yeah. Yeah, because I remember those two incidents happened really close to each other. And yeah, it's, and it, that's the symbol of leadership. That's the importance of leadership to me. It's not, you're not looking for them to craft policies. The leadership of any government, what, and this is my personal belief, there's no research behind this, but uh, any government, local, state, federal, is a vessel. And that vessel is empty and is filled by the loudest voices around them. So, you know, you have um, people like, uh, Donald Trump, who look at his closest advisors, people like Stephen Miller, Betsy DeVos, um, Bill Barr. You know, when you look at his behavior, those are the kind of people who are encouraging that. When you look at the mayor of St. Louis, you know, I've been to St. Louis. That's a, um, it's a very racially segregated town. And, you know, you have the, the northern part of St. Louis, which is literally, I wrote about this uh, a couple years ago. It's literally on top of a nuclear radioactive waste dump. Uh, and then... Uh, a predominantly white block um, south of downtown, which is wealthier, which has better schools, which has more resources in general. Um, you know, it's, it's not surprising that you see that kind of behavior uh, toward protesters. Wealthier, better schools, less radioactivity. Yeah, <laughs> less radioactivity. That's a big one. Yeah. Um, but the, the thing that I was pulling out from this too is that, yes, Trump definitely led in doing that, but it's not as if those down the way are ignoring that leadership. They are acting on it and acting like him. 
Yeah, and that's the um, that's the danger uh, is the leadership sets the tone, and it, it's kind of like, and this is kind of a side topic, but when Trump posted the photo of him wearing the mask, and I think it's the first time he's he's done that. Uh, that's actually one of the better things he's done because when you look at the replies uh, from his base, they're all like, oh, that's a cool looking mask. I want one. Where can I get it? And these are the same people, and I saw people on Twitter document this, who before Trump posted the photo of him wearing a mask, were saying, you know, masks were part of a government plot to control us and um, usurp our freedoms and, and all this other stuff. So leadership definitely sets the tone. Oh, yeah. I, I, I think having a vacuum of leadership. Um, you know, in the midst of, of so much violence, I think that will definitely encourage more violence. You're sending the signal that it's okay and it will only continue. Well, vacuum of leadership would be one thing, but in this case, you actually have, have had on this particular topic an active encouragement towards these things from the leadership. So it's, it's, uh, it's one of those things where, where in a complete absence of leadership, that, that first of all is not good. I, I'm not going to even say that it is. But he hasn't been absent on leadership on this. He's been saying, like I said, he's been saying when uh, the, the looting starts, the shooting starts. He's been mm-hmm. giving, he's been, he's been posting the pictures of, hey, we need to know who this person is. I mean, this is not an absence of leadership on this. He's been leading mm-hmm. quietly and through code. The, uh, he's been looting uh, the three percenters and the Boogaloo boys and the Proud boys. He's been throwing the, his leadership behind them. Well, and also the, um, the administration's coziness with police unions. Uh, you know, I think going back to 2018, 2017, um, the administration frequently had um, county sheriffs, police chiefs, um, fraternal order of police uh, presidents at the White House um, for multiple, you know, law enforcement days, um, you know, first responder days, things like that. The administration has shown that it fully um, supports police terror of black lives and black communities. And of course, Jeff Sessions, when he was attorney general, suspending the consent decrees in places like Ferguson, Baltimore, Chicago, um, you know, that's all a very clear signal that, yes, they're okay with this kind of violence and they encourage it. And they're not going to hold police accountable for depriving people of their of their civil liberties. Absolutely. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we're talking to Carl Gibson. He has written a piece about the enormous amount of backlash that has been occurring since uh, the end of May, uh, since the George Floyd, play, Floyd, uh, George Floyd protests began uh, against Black Lives Matter activists and, uh, and Black people in general from um, white uh, power groups, basically, who have decided to uh, take it back at them. Uh, over 300 incidents, as he is uh, noted, he's published this on his Substack. Carl, uh, can you give out the address of that Substack again? Uh, yeah, it's real easy to remember. It's Carl Gibson with a C, Gibson like the guitar, carlgibson.substack.com. All right, that's carlgibson.substack.com. Again, he put it out there. Uh, so far, that's the best source for it. I'm going to make sure to link to it on TMI, TMI, TMI.com, uh, as well as anywhere else I post the promo for this particular uh, piece. But um, So if you've clicked on this from just about anywhere, you should be able to get it from there as well. But in any case, uh, Carl, I really appreciate you bringing this to the light because it is important that people understand that we have ourselves a situation where, yes, un, un, in unprecedented ways and numbers, in a lot of ways, uh, at least unprecedented for the last, say, 30, 40 years, um, black people are standing up and demanding that their lives be taken seriously, that their lives matter. And it's not that much to ask, but there's been such a backlash to it. And that backlash, unlike 
the protests and unlike every act of uh of uh what what could be considered vandalism or whatever else all these coded words every act made by black lives matter protests have been magnified where the actions against them have been minimized or completely unreported and uh carl i really appreciate you bringing it to light you know if you're um if your people have any questions, um, I would definitely encourage them to follow Alexander Reed Ross on Twitter. I interviewed him for the uh, bulk of information in that piece, um, and he's been documenting this extensively. So definitely give him a follow too. Absolutely. All right. And one last thing before I let anybody go here, I just, I just want to make sure to get all that in. Uh, but uh, you brought up how the Trump administration has such a strong connection to uh, the America's police forces as they are. My God, Carl, I can't hardly, I literally have to think that it's about one out of every two YouTube videos that I've watched lately starts off with a compulsory uh, 10 second ad uh, that the Trump administration puts out there uh, saying thanks to Joe Biden being in Joe Biden's America, there's no one here to answer your emergency call, uh, and it's a it's like a 911 operator station that's unmanned, just playing a recording. Sorry, you voted for Joe Biden, now you have no cops. Yeah, and that's which is so funny to me because um, Joe Biden was one of the first people to go against the defund police um, call, and it's not even so. I'm sure you're fam you're familiar with the meme of. Um, uh, Vince Vaughn, not Vince Vaughn, um, Vince McMahon, where there's like four panels, right? And Vince McMahon is like more jazzed up on each panel. Yep. And the first one where he's kind of like, okay about it. It's like, um, uh, defund police. Right. And then right. the next panel, it says abolish the police. And he's like even more jazzed up about it. And then the next panel is abolish the military. And then his eyes are like red, but right. all that is to say defund the police. It's a very, moderate centrist call to action because all they're really saying is some of this money that's going towards police departments, maybe redistribute that to underfunded programs like mental health, public education, um, even sustainable city development, parks and rec, things like that. And a lot of other people are saying, why don't we just abolish police departments in the first place? Uh, because people are capable of watching out for each other, watching out for their own communities. Uh, and police are actually slave, they're modern day slave patrols. That was the original intent of police departments was not to prevent crime, but to police black people. Right, I mean, there, there, there are so many alternatives that are actually being put out there to right. uh, what the, the policing that we've become accustomed to. And uh, I mean, just one example of the easy abuse where that uh, is a quick shot at defunding is uh, people don't understand that a lot of the uh, traffic tickets that get uh, taken out there, like for speeding or for anything else, where a cop pulls you over, usually that's in the last half hour or less of his shift. And yep. the reason for that is, is because then he can go back uh, and get overtime to fill the paperwork out for that, which is relatively easy, sit at a desk and do it, but it takes a while. So he gets paid an hour or two for of overtime to file the paperwork on a on a pullover he didn't necessarily have to do but he wanted the overtime pay yeah and you know most cops and this is a free hat tip to um um i forget who put this out <laughs> but I'm, I'm gonna kick myself for this i saw this somewhere and they said most cops work 12-hour shifts uh which is usually seven to seven that's usually the standard shift for a police officer a.m to p.m or p.m to a.m and so around 6 30 definitely Use your turn signals before you change lanes. Don't go over the speed limit because that's, that's quota time, right? 
So yeah, just like you were saying, um, and a lot of those tickets are revenue generation. It's not even that, you know, you are doing anything dangerous in the road. It's just, you know, I didn't stop for three seconds, a full three seconds at the stop sign and they want to do more paperwork to get the overtime. So yeah, right. and the and the irony is that that revenue wouldn't necessarily have to be generated if there wasn't so much OT to pay the officers. Um, exactly. But in any case, Carl, uh, that's that's a little uh, that's slightly off topic, but it does bring us back around to the fact that uh, the Trump administration is extremely behind the police officers in this country, uh, and the Biden administration, uh, the the upcoming perhaps shall we say, Biden administration certainly is no slouch there either. And that's actually where it comes back to what we need to do about the police officers themselves. It's not like we can expect leadership at the top to be pushing for this. However, we do have a situation now in uh, Minneapolis where it is set that they will be taking apart what they have and replacing it with something completely different. That, that's been voted on. It is set. That part's done. What they're going to do with it is been, still being decided exactly. But the action is going to be taken. And that's because the community said they can't have it anymore. The university there said, we will not have uh, Minneapolis police involved with us in any way, shape, or form that we don't have to. No more paying for special event protection. No more, none of that. Um, that's because uh, the, the, the public schools in Minneapolis said the same thing. That's because the entire community stood up and said, we're not taking it anymore. We need something different. And that's what it's going to take if you actually want to have a change in the lives of these people. And frankly, I believe that's the only appropriate reaction to the backlash that has been happening against Black Lives Matters protesters is to show the people who want to carry on violence and intimidation against people putting out Black Lives Matters protests and George Floyd protests that it's just going to backlash on them and that we're, they're going to wind up having the result they don't want. Yeah, and, and that's a great point, Aldous. Yeah, and I, I want to encourage your listeners as well. And I, I'm sure a lot of them are, are planning to do this already. But uh, just like we saw with Obama, in 2008, when he was running for president, he was for single-payer health care. He was for um, trade deals that prioritize working people. He was for um, scaling back the war in Iraq and the military-industrial complex. You know, there's statements uh, in support of regulating GMOs. I mean, there's, he was very progressive when he was running for president. In 2009, and this goes back to my earlier point about uh, governments being vessels, in 2009, he surrounded himself with the Chicago machine, Rahm Emanuel, uh, Tom Daly later on was his chief of staff, um, Timothy Geithner, uh, people like Eric Holder. Uh, you know, he was surrounding himself with centrist corporate. Um, and I, I hate to say it, but let's not forget uh, Hillary Clinton and, of course, Joe Biden. Right. Absolutely. Uh, Joe Biden authored the crime bill, right? Hillary Clinton was the architect behind the coup in Honduras. Uh, all because Honduras wanted to raise the minimum wage, and that would have resulted in a minimum wage increase for all of Central America. And of course, now you had this wave of immigration uh, coming from Central America because that whole area was destabilized by Hillary Clinton's policies uh, through the Obama administration. So yeah, absolutely. People need to understand cause and effect, but you, all this is to say, the protests have to continue. The riots have to continue when Biden is president. Barring a miracle, I don't think Trump is going to win. I mean, he's, he's fucked everything up too much. But I think there's an absolute need for there to be a constant rabble in the streets. You know, I think France is a great example of a healthy democracy. You know, Macron was elected a centrist liberal, mainly because people didn't want a right-wing fascist government. That was the alternative. Uh, and so the French have proven themselves to be absolutely ungovernable. 
You know, when Macron proposed raising the gas tax, that's when the Yellow Vest movement started. And a deliberate tactic of the Yellow Vest movement was to burn down the expensive luxury stores in downtown Paris. And what happened? Macron repealed the gas tax increase. So yeah, protests are a good thing. And the leadership should always be, and I think this is a quote from V for Vendetta, um, the people should not fear their government. The government should fear the people. And I think it is. If we make a Biden administration fear the people, I think you'll see a lot of um, progressive policies put in place. But we have to, we have to maintain the protests for that to happen. If there's any good news to be had, I believe we already have them pretty afraid of it. Uh, just from the lack of exposure they're allowing their candidate to have, the Biden, uh, um, the guy, Biden campaign seems to really not want to uh, directly uh, cross the protests in general. They don't mind if Joe goes and makes a gaffe here. They're, well, actually, they do mind that, but they can't help that. Uh, but, uh, but generally speaking, they're trying to keep him as far away from being uh, exposed to all that as possible. And frankly, to me, that smells of fear. Yeah, and that, that's a good point. Um, yeah, and Angela Davis, she made a great point on Democracy Now! a couple weeks ago. And your listeners might be familiar with that segment, but Amy Goodman asked her um, what her position was on this election. And she says, you know, to be clear, I don't support the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. Uh, and I don't think electoral politics are the best way um, to express radical politics. But when you look at how governments are influenced through protests and mass demonstrations, I, I think it's pretty clear who is more susceptible to pressure from protests. Uh, and in that respect, we have to vote strategically. Uh, so I, I think that was a great point, especially in Wisconsin, because I, I think a lot of people are just going to have to, a lot of people on the left, at least, are going to have to um, just pinch their nose and uh, vote for straight ticket done in order to have a government that will at least be responsive to um, our protests and calls for action. Well, that would be nice. I do know that, uh, I do know that um, there's been uh, reports, of course, that uh, the votes that were stolen from the 2016 election were far greater than the votes that uh, were the margin between. Um, Trump and, and Hillary, of course, but that's a whole other matter. And of course, people go, oh, those wasn't that Russia? No, 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 not Russia. Um, <laughs> that, that, <laughs> Russia. Russia ran some stupid Facebook ads. That's primarily what yeah. they did. Um, but um, anyway, well, we, without, without losing track of where we're at here, Carl, I can tell you this much. Um, I think that we're on a, in a good stead right now from, from this point if we keep going. The Black Lives Matter protests, the, the, the uh, George Floyd protests specifically uh, and onward have shown so much advancement and have made so much progress where years and years of voting and years of more peaceful demonstrations have had virtually no effect. The George Floyd protests have gotten uh, so much accomplished already um, and made uh, such a huge push towards making public opinion go the direction that it needs to go to, in order for black lives to actually matter publicly, that it's astounding that anybody could possibly point at to them and go, violence doesn't do anything. Uh, I'm sorry, but we have the proof right here. Well, and also that's just history, right? You know, if ask yourself if the Boston Tea Party never happened and if protesters instead in the colonies insisted on peaceful tactics, uh, I think we'd probably still be a British territory. You know, that was, that was an act of corporate property destruction to advance a political objective. And so, yes, they were looting. Yes, they were rioting. And 
they were wearing racist costumes. Like, let's be honest, it was racist. Um, but riots work. And, you know, look at Stonewall for a more recent example. Oh, yes. You wouldn't have all of these corporations and banks waving rainbow flags if it weren't for the LGBT community setting things on fire and attacking police 50 years ago. So riots absolutely work. Well, it, it really actually, that, that, that was the biggest one that stunned me. All these people during the month of June going, why can't these protests be peaceful? And so many of my LGBT friends and myself looking at them and going, <laughs> <laughs> so um, in any case though, Carl, thank you so much for coming on so we could get this covered uh, again. Ladies and gentlemen, you want to go to carlgibson.substack.com for this piece and many more from, uh, from the uh, talented and tireless fingers of uh, Mr. Gibson here. And uh, I just pleased as punch to have you back on TMI with Aldous Tyler, and you can be sure I'll probably be inviting you back in the near future. Well, thanks for having me again, Aldous, and um, best of luck to you in your endeavors. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler, and we'll be back.